It's Fake News Friday, and we'll go through the biggest, worst examples of legacy media fake news narratives. Plus, you'll have your chance to vote on what you thought was the biggest fake news narrative of 2021. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Happy Friday. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. So as you know, here at the Candace Malcolm Show, we dedicate one show per week, an entire episode of this show to exposing the fake news in Canada, to point out all of the various ways of how the media in Canada is corrupted. And let me tell you, they are for so many different ways. So the first biggest problem, it's obvious, and it's been this case for a long time, is that most media have a left-wing bias. They, they pretend to be objectively telling you the facts, reporting the truth, reporting the news, but in in reality, and, and this has become so obvious in recent years, but what they're really doing is pushing their own worldview, pushing their own ideology. They are trying to guide you in a certain direction, and they're not being honest about it. So here at True North, you know that editorially we are conservatives, that we have a conservative worldview, we believe in limited government and traditional principles about society, and you can see that in the editorial side of things, you can see that in the way that I present my show and do my podcast. However, when it comes to our news reports, they are fact-based, but they're going to be of stories of interest to conservatives because that's what the legacy media ignores. Now, the legacy media isn't open and transparent about their own biases. They don't come out and say, look, we are left wing. We have a liberal worldview. We like Justin Trudeau. We're going to vote for him. They don't say any of that. They just pretend to be neutral, even though we know that they're not. We know that they push their own agenda and they create their own narratives that are often very removed and divorced from the facts on the ground. In the U.S., you see it with the Democrats. You see how they how they celebrate Democrats, how they parrot Democrat talking points. The same thing happens in Canada with the Liberal Party, but in Canada it's much worse. In Canada you can compound that problem of media bias by the fact that the media in this country are reliant on funding from the Trudeau government, from the federal Liberal Party, so it's not just the CBC. The CBC has always been a bad actor in this case, taking billions of dollars from the taxpayer. Every time there's an election, Justin Trudeau pledges even more money to the CBC. So the CBC has grown in scope significantly since Trudeau became prime minister. And then starting in 2017, he extended that funding to newspapers, to failing newspapers. So he had that $595 million bailout to subsidize journalists. So, so, so you have this situation in Canada where you have the parliamentary press gallery, the very people who are charged with exposing corruption or fraud, uh, holding the government accountable, exposing wasteful spending, bad programs, failed programs, um, politicians acting in unethical ways, really holding the government to account. The people charged with doing that are funded by the same government that they're supposedly holding accountable. It's such a conflict of interest. It's it's so it's so ridiculous the fact that that this is the case. This is the status quo that people accept in this country. So here at the Candace Malcolm Show and at True North, we we spend a lot of time exposing this corruption, exposing the manifestation of it, which is just really bad, really biased media and news stories that often have no bearing on reality. And so for today's episode, it's a special episode. I've gotten together with my producers here at the Candace Malcolm Show, and we've come up with nominations. So these are what we think are the five biggest examples of fake news narratives of the year in Canada 2021. And we're going to ask you, the viewers, to vote. So you're going to get to determine what you think was the biggest fake news narrative of the year. Head on over to tnc.news slash fake news or just tnc.news and you'll see a banner that you can click on. And you can see we've got these five nominations. You can click on the one that you think is the worst example and the biggest fake news narrative 
of the year. And then next week on the show, it'll be the last fake news Friday of the year because the next Friday is Christmas Eve and the following Friday is New Year's Eve. I won't have shows those days. So next Friday will be the last fake news Friday of the year and we'll do something fun. We'll, we'll have a little party and we will announce what the True North viewer determined was the biggest fake news narrative of the year. Okay, without further ado, let's get to these nominations of the five fake news narratives of the year. So number one story, this is one that I spent a lot of time researching, reporting on and uncovering. And this, this was just one of the worst examples of the media narrative being so removed from the facts and in such a negative way, really just painting the absolute worst picture of Canada that, that frankly Canadians deserve so much better. And of course, I'm talking about the story of the unmarked graves. So back in May, 2021, news broke of unmarked graves discovered at a residential school in British Columbia. It was the Tekemloops First Nations. They wrote up a press release. It was two pages. It was mostly quotes from within their own community about how sad they were. Very, very few, very scant on facts and details. So without verifying any of this, without trying to uncover what it was that was actually supposedly discovered, the media just ran with the story, exaggerated it, sensationalized it, jumped to the very worst conclusions you could possibly imagine about Canada, about our country, saying that we had committed genocide, saying that these children were murdered, saying that these schools, these residential schools, were basically akin to Nazi death camps. That, that's the narrative, that's what they spun out of this story. And to most Canadians, if you just weren't really paying attention or you didn't bother to go and do your due diligence, you might've walked away thinking that that was the case. Of course, that's not what the facts on the ground about this story told us. And so while many media reports said that these were mass graves, many of them confirmed that they belonged to children, confirmed that they were First Nations children, confirmed that these graves belonged to former students of the residential school. None, none of that is true. None of that is confirmed. None of that is the case. And, and as for mass graves, the whole, the whole assumption that Canada was digging up mass graves and throwing bodies in there is, is just repulsive. That, that, that sort of conjures the worst images of 20th century collectivist governments, um, mass murder, genocide, firing squads, all that kind of stuff. That's not what was happening in Canada. So if we take a step back and look at what was confirmed and what was verified versus what was unverifiable, um, we see that the story is really quite different. So, so, so as we know now, there were no excavations, there were no bodies, there were no remains that were actually discovered. It was never confirmed that these graves had anything to do with the residential schools, that they belonged to children or that they belonged to First Nations. And in fact, some of the news stories and reporting that has come out since really sort of disproves some of the basic tenets of the story. I'll give you an example. So here's a global news story and they spoke to the former chief of the St. Mary's Indian Band. And so just, just as further context, after the first band in Kamloops came out with their claim, we saw four or five other First Nations come out with similar claims. And, and so this is referring to one of those other bands. This one was in Kootenai. So Sophie Pierre, who's a former chief, told Global News that while news of the unmarked graves had a painful impact on her and surrounding communities, she said that they had always known that the graves were there. And then this is a quote. She said, there's no discovery. We knew it was there. It's a graveyard. The fact that there are graves inside a graveyard shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. According to Pierre, wooden crosses that originally marked the grave sites had been burned or deteriorated over the years. Using a wooden marker at a grave site remains a practice that continues to this day in many Indigenous communities across Canada. So, so what a leap, right? What you probably have more, more accurately is stories of graveyards that had fallen into disrepair. Graveyards that were used by both the Indigenous community and the non-Indigenous community. Graveyards that serviced a broader area in one instance the graveyard was associated with a local hospital that predated the residential school by a few decades. 
So again, this is quite the leap to go from what the media reported, at least initially, that these were mass graves discovered at a residential school that contained the remains of children who had been murdered at the residential schools to the later iteration, which is that these graves were in existing graveyards, that they weren't mass graves, they were individually marked graves, the graves had been deteriorated, that the graveyards serviced the broader community, so it wasn't just First Nations, certainly not just residential schools. And in one case, the graveyard was actually associated with a nearby hospital that predated the residential school by a few decades. So a lot of the remains or the unmarked graves that we were told belonged to children actually just belonged to early Canadians who lived there. None, none of it had been confirmed. Of course, there's in, in many ways, there's no way of verifying any of this unless we were to do excavations, which I don't think Canada ever would do. So, 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 so just to see how removed from the facts on the ground the narrative was. And of course, none of this is to say that residential schools were good. I'm not defending residential schools at all. In fact, I think residential schools were a terrible program, but that's the thing. Journalists aren't there to tell you their opinion on the news and to shape the news based on their own opinions. Journalists are there to just present the facts to the public so the public is aware of what's going on. And in this case, the media, the legacy media just absolutely failed. Okay, moving on to nomination number two. This is a huge presence in all of our lives and I'm talking about vaccines and the moving goalposts when it comes to the requirements. So all the way back in April 2020, Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, told Canadians that there would be no return to normal until a COVID vaccine was available to Canadians. Likewise, Ontario Premier said that returning to normal without a vaccine would put lives at risk. So Canadians could be forgiven for thinking that, okay, once the vaccine is available, once people are mostly vaccinated, life will return to normal. But we all know that this wasn't the case. Vaccines are now available. Most Canadians are now vaccinated, and yet we still are having COVID outbreaks. We still have to live with masks in our lives, travel restrictions, all kinds of requirements when it comes to how we can live in a free society. It's not like things have gone back to normal. The opposite of that, things are getting more restrictive and more tight. We've given up so many of our liberties and we're just not getting them back. Same thing could be said with the vaccine mandates. So months after the vaccine became available to Canadians, Justin Trudeau said that vaccine passports would be left to the provinces to implement and that they would be divisive. Here's a clip of Justin Trudeau saying that. One final question on um, COVID, and then I'd like to pivot to, to the South, if I may. Will, will Canada consider requiring people in this country to have proof of vaccination similar to the digital uh, passports that are being developed in, in places like Denmark and Greece and the EU? I think it's an interesting idea, but uh, I think it is also fraught with challenges. Uh, we are certainly encouraging and motivating people uh, to get vaccinated as quickly as possible. But we always know uh, there are people who uh, won't get vaccinated uh, and not necessarily through a, a, a personal or political choice. There are medical reasons. There are uh, a, a broad range of reasons why someone might not get vaccinated. And I'm worried about uh, creating uh, uh, creating knock-on undesirable effects in our community. I think uh, the indications that the vast majority of Canadians are looking to get vaccinated uh, will get us to a good place without having to uh, to take uh, more extreme measures that could have uh, real divisive uh, impacts on, on community and country. 
And interestingly, in response, both Jason Kenney, the Conservative Premier of Alberta, and Doug Ford, the Conservative Premier of Ontario, both ruled out implementing a vaccine passport system. Ford infamously said that he didn't want to live in a split society and that a vaccine passport would create a split society. And Jason Kenney said that a vaccine passport would violate Alberta's Health Information Act. Now, we know that all of these politicians flip-flopped. During the federal election, it became the main platform for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals that they would implement this vaccine passport, not just for federal employees, but anyone wishing to travel, travel on an airplane, a train or a bus in Canada would be required to be vaccinated. And we know that Ontario and Alberta have each implemented their own vaccine passport. So everything to do with vaccines and vaccine passports, we were told one thing and now it's another. And the media is just completely carrying water uh, for these politicians and not really holding them accountable, cheerleading and trying to pressure people into getting vaccinated and going so far as to demonize those who do not get vaccinated, calling them anti-vaxxers and calling them extreme. Okay, moving on, number three, the legacy media in a very similar vein completely demonized people who were opposed to the lockdown. So, so right from the beginning, right when people took to the streets in peaceful protests to say, we've had enough of lockdowns, we've had enough of government overreach, let us go back to normal, let us go back to our normal lives. The legacy media, immediately started to demonize these people, to paint them as fringe extremists, paint them as even dangerous. We saw this over and over again, where rather than trying to understand these people, rather than giving them a fair shake or explaining what it was that was motivating them, the media played opposition and, and just started demonizing, attacking these people, making them seem unreasonable, making them seem extreme, fringe, whatever it is, we saw it over and over again. So here's some examples from the legacy media, CTV, pandemic of hate, Leaders, experts warn anti-lockdown protests linked to the far right. So we're told that these are conspiracy theorists and that they're part of the far right. Next, over the CBC, protests at Trudeau rallies, an evolution of far right ideology. And they're always quoting these same idiots at the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, which from best I can tell is just a very amateur blog. It has a professional sounding name. And so the media go to these people for comments. But if, if you look at what they actually do and the people that they focus on and the, the people that they try to expose, it's, it, and, and it's really strange. It's really amateur. And again, these people, this Canadian Anti-Hate Network, they get funding from the Trudeau government. So Trudeau government is paying them to basically invent this boogeyman of a far right, um, which they expose on their website. It's usually just really weird, anonymous online people that you've never heard of that have no impact whatsoever on the conservative party or the conservative movement, but they pretend it's this big spooky force out there. Okay, moving on. This one's in the National Post. Anti-maskers lockdown protests have links to a far-right ideology, according to Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the left-wing New Democrat Party. So here's Jagmeet Singh out there saying that these people are far right because they are anti-mask and anti-lockdown. He said to brazenly not follow public health guidelines puts people at risk. And that is something we've seen with extreme far right ideology. Well, some went even further than that. Here is former mayor of Calgary, Nahid Nenshi, saying that the anti-mask rallies are just thinly veiled white nationalist protests. So if you oppose government overreach, if you oppose all of the various infringements on our liberties and our freedoms over the past two years. It is because you are fringe. It is because you are far right. It is because apparently you are a white nationalist, according to the legacy media and the left wing politicians that they parrot.
Okay, moving on. This one's mostly a U.S. one, but it was so compelling that we had to include it in our list. Number four, the story of Kyle Rittenhouse. So when a jury found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty of murder for fatally shooting two men and injuring a third last year during riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, politicians and the legacy media collectively lost their minds. They portrayed Rittenhouse as a vigilante. They called him a white supremacist. They said that he had gunned down innocent black men during a Black Lives Matter protest. They said he used an illegal firearm. They said that he illegally crossed state lines with that firearm. And they basically said that he just traveled across the country, traveled across state lines to Kenosha, saying that it was a town that he had no connection to, saying that he went there for the sole purpose of killing people, basically. That's, that's more or less the narrative that we heard in the media. So the facts on the ground told us that Rittenhouse was 17 at the time. He went to Kenosha. It was a community that was close to where he lived. He considered it his own community. He showed up out of concern for the lack of rule of law, for the arson and all the vandalism that was taking place. He went there to protect a friend's car dealership, who, which had been torched, uh, millions of dollars of property damage the night before. He went there to help secure the property, but also to uh, administer first aid for anyone who had been injured. He wasn't ideological. He, he told Tucker Carlson in an interview that he supports Black Lives Matter. So very far from the narrative that we heard from the media. And the facts on the ground, of course, are that he only acted in self-defense. He didn't proactively go out and shoot anyone. It was only when he was in imminent danger did he fire his weapon to protect himself. So he ended up fatally shooting two people and injuring a third. The three men that he shot were all white. And I think it is worth noting that they were all violent criminals with long rap shoots, including one of whom was a convicted child rapist. So again, very different from what we were told. Regardless of all the facts and everything we learned in the case, we had the Canadian left reacting as if we didn't know any of those facts, as if the narrative that was presented by the media were the facts, even though those weren't the facts. So here's Jagmeet Singh on Twitter saying, I know today's verdict is painful for many. It feels like another failure by a broken system designed to protect some and hurt others. And then he called it a denial of justice. So he thinks that it was designed to protect people like Kyle Rittenhouse and to hurt others. I don't really understand. Next, we have Charles Adler. He said that there are those who think if Kyle Rittenhouse was a young African-American, the verdict would have been the same. I am not one of those. I don't really understand what he's talking about. If, if Kyle Rittenhouse had been an African-American, this wouldn't have been a national story. This wouldn't have been a national news story at all. The only reason why this case even went to trial, these charges were even pressed against Kyle Rittenhouse was because of the narrative. And so this idea that it would have been different if he was African-American, again, they're implying these terrible things about the US justice system with no basis in reality, it's it's so wild. The Toronto Star, of course, goes even further. So here is a column where the author writes, damn the laws that acquit Kyle Rittenhouse for they show no care for justice. Therefore, pardon me for thinking this, but who gives a damn about the law when law keepers can kill and maim with abandon? When the law allows murder and corrupt ideas of justice in the process. We live in times where taking a human's life in exchange for a threat to one's property is given the all clear if the killer is white. It's just so deranged, not at all based on the facts. I'm surprised that the editor of The Star would allow her to write this because again, it's not based on the facts. It's based on her feelings about the narrative and it has nothing to do with the facts that we learned in the case. And this one is really the giveaway. Robin Urbach, who, who I generally like, she's, she's usually pretty good, but she gives away the thinking of the legacy media and the left when it comes to the way that they view this story. And she says this, notwithstanding how much of an a-hole this guy is for carrying around a rifle during a protest like a dress up G.I. Joe, 
prosecution's case here were pretty tough. The defense didn't have to prove Rittenhouse was acting in self-defense. The prosecution had to disprove it. And, and the purpose is that the media just really didn't like the way this guy looked. Forget about the facts on the ground. Forget about what actually happened. Forget about self-defense. They don't like the way this guy looked. The, the fact that he was carrying this gun made him guilty, made him a vigilante, made him a white supremacist. That's how the media saw it, which, which again just shows the media's own cultural bias when it comes to reporting on these cases. Okay, moving on, number five, last one here. We'd be remiss, it was an election year, we would be remiss if we didn't include the legacy media covering for Justin Trudeau, playing defense, and basically acting like a third party group campaigning for the liberals throughout the campaign. There were just so many examples of this where the media were just completely unfair. So, so here we have 2021, an election. An election that Justin Trudeau needlessly called. The only reason for the election was that he wanted his own majority government. That was the only reason. The government didn't fall on its own. The opposition was willing to continue to work with this parliament. So there was no reason for the election other than Justin Trudeau was going for a power grab. And yet that wasn't the focus of the election. That wasn't what the media was talking about day in or day out. We didn't focus on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's record in office. We didn't talk barely at all about the Wee scandal and the fallout from that, which by the way, Trudeau prorogued parliament to escape the committee that was investigating him. And then he called an election again to escape scrutiny for this scandal that we've never really gotten to the bottom of. The election wasn't about Trudeau's reckless spending, his borrowing, the growing of debt, the printing of money, the inflation that has come from that. The media barely focused at all on Justin Trudeau, in fact. They focused instead, as they always do, on the conservatives, on trying to demonize the conservatives, paint them as scary, paint them as if they are some threat to the Canadian ideal. And so whatever the liberals attack of the day was, whatever their talking points were, that became the legacy media's focus. It became their own talking points and it became the story. So we saw the liberals push attack ads claiming that O'Toole wanted to privatize Canada's healthcare. The opposite was true, but that didn't matter. We saw stories about how he wanted to push anti-abortion laws. The opposite is true. Aaron O'Toole is very proudly pro-abortion. And we saw stories that said that Aaron O'Toole denied climate change, even though he introduced his own carbon tax. So the media are more than happy to carry water for the liberals. The liberals were never challenged by the legacy media. We barely saw stories about them at all. Instead, it was all focused on demonizing conservatives, promoting fear about what a conservative government would stand for, or completely demonizing people who were out there protesting and out there demanding more freedoms and more liberties. So it's no surprise that Justin Trudeau was able to hold on and win a minority government just by the skin of his teeth because he had so much institutional help from a very biased and very corrupt legacy media. Okay, folks, those are the top five nominations for the biggest stories of the year. And again, I'm gonna get you to head on over to tnc.news slash fake news, or just head on over to tnc.news and you can see a banner where you can vote on these top five stories again. I hope you will go and do that. Go vote, let us know what you think was the biggest story. And we'll be back again next week with the winner. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.